When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thanks for listening to the latest Football Digest podcast available on all podcast platforms. Subscribe now through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Acast or wherever you get your podcasts from so you don't miss a single episode. Good morning and welcome to the Football Digest weekly podcast. Thanks so much for for joining. Um, The gang's all here this week actually, which is uh, quite a nice uh, treat. Uh, Jeremy Cross, my colleague from the Daily Star, Andy Dunn, my Daily Mirror colleague as well, Matt Dunn from the Daily Express. Nice to see you all and uh, also have your have everyone's um, company um, uh, to, to, to watch and tune in. We're going to actually start, I think, with a bit of a Premier League pre, uh, sort of review, I should say. Um, where are we up to so far this season? A bit of an England preview. Um, you know, despite these two games effectively being dead rubbers, that it fans out in force for um, the Morton game at Wembley on Friday night, and of course the North Macedonia trip. Um, then um, onwards and upwards um, uh, next Monday, uh, which is the end of the Euros qualifying campaign. Who's booked their places and for for the um, for the Euro squad? Do we think we and Andy had a sort of a a raging debate, didn't we, Andy, about Raheem Sterling? Does he get his place back in? Let, let's let's have a chat about that. But we're going to start, I think, with Manchester United because I tell you what, um, in international weeks, um, it's it's about where the kind of the domestic news occurs, and Manchester United on a lot of back pages still they always command a lot of back pages. To be honest, um, you know, twelve months a year, but basically on a lot of back pages for for making changes as, as the Jim Ratcliffe. Um, rev- the revolution begins, particularly in in getting rid of Richard Arnold. I mean, Jamie, you know, if I start with you, you know, you, you know, you know, I see very well. And Richard Arnold has clearly been moved on. As a, a, you know, the cl- company's failing; it's not doing very well. Clearly, the obvious thing to do is get rid of the chief executive in those circumstances. So, um, you know, and Richard Arnold hasn't. You know, I'm afraid to say. You know, when you are chief executive, you are held responsible, um, aren't you really, for that? And Jim Ratcliffe, it seems to me, you know, is going in with the idea of trying to kind of almost win over the fans, isn't he, by making changes like that and like, you know, to try and improve the things on the pitch and and to to the playing staff. Yeah, look, it's a seismic thing to happen at United this week. But ultimately, United have been stale for so long and... You know, Richard Arnold was viewed as someone who was in the Ed Woodward mould. He replaced Ed Woodward, who we all know what happened to him. And nothing changed, really, from what I can see. I'm sure you probably agree with me. You know, they have, they have been treading water, if not going under, under his leadership. And look, when a company when a company's not succeeding, the, the chief executive is the guy who has to carry the can because he makes all the decisions on behalf of the Glazers. Um, you know, the Glazers can't be removed because they own the club. Um, I mean that might might change in the coming weeks, but um, so yeah, I wasn't surprised at all. You know, um, 
And the issue I have with Man United is for, for years and years they've appointed people in these positions from within. They never look out, they never have the foresight to look outside the club and um, bring someone in from, say, elsewhere, um, like PSG or, you know, Real Madrid or whatever. And, and that, that is sort of part of the arrogance that an entitlement United still have. And, you know, I, I don't feel sorry for Richard Arnold. I don't think he achieved anything as, as chief executive at Man United. And it was clearly obvious that he's been, he's been given the push. You know, I put a statement out to say, you know, thanks for your service and you've been brilliant commercially, which what Woodward was. You know, Woodward made the club a lot of money. Richard Arnold just carried that on. But there's far more to it than just making money because the fans just want to see a successful team and he's been unable to provide his managers with that. Andy, what fascinates me about the Jim Ratcliffe scenario is that basically here's a guy who the fans haven't taken to at all, have they? Basically, you speak to the match-going fan and it's kind of, you know, Jim Ratcliffe has come in and not, overseeing the takeover. He's bought 25% and basically the fans just are not happy because the Glazers still have a controlling stake. And, you know, Jim Ratcliffe is, is obviously part of that. I guess the, the obvious thing here, surely Jim Ratcliffe is trying to make a difference and win over the fans who are deeply sceptical at this point in time by making those kind of on-the-pitch football changes. Yeah, well, but he can't make the on-the-pitch on the pitch football changes, can he? You know, I mean, it, it's up to whoever is his manager, Eric Ten Hag at the moment, and whoever he decides is going to be, you know, a director of football, sport director, call them what you want. And the chief exec, I guess, to some to some extent. Um so no, I don't I don't particularly think the fans thing is interesting because, you know, will this appease fans, for example, start will this start to encourage fans that he's essentially engineered the removal of Richard Arnold? I'm not sure they're that bothered about that. I'm I'm really I'm really not, and I slightly disagree with Jeremy to a certain extent. You know, I think that you know United finished um, third last season, won the Carabao Cup, got to the FA Cup final. Um, they're not doing, despite all the histrionics, they're not doing too badly this season. You know, people keep saying this is the worst United team. Well, and then they throw the stats; they've lost five. Yeah, but they've won seven. And you know, again, you can you can you can. This is why statistics are often, you know, the last refuge of the scandal, really. You can you can manipulate them either way, can't you? You know, you can say to Eric Ten Hag, you know, look, at he's won the most league games out of any United manager in the first 50 games. It, it is what it is, and they've got only a couple of points less than last season. So, I, I mean, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't point the finger and say, okay, well, Richard Arnold is the architect of, of, of United's relative underachievement in recent years. I'd probably say the owners are, are, are more culpable for that. However, Ratcliffe coming in, if that's the vibe you get, I get the same sort of vibe that fans are a little bit mystified. It's only a quarter stake. However, it does appear for that quarter stake, which, I, again, I'm, it's hard to get your head around. So for that quarter stake, he gets control of the football. Like, this is what seems to be the narrative. And the Glazers, presumably, for their 75%, just take the commercial deals and take the money and take the money off Jim Ratcliffe. Right, fine. So if Ratcliffe has got control of the sporting matters, there really is precious little in what he's done so far with um, the America's Cup, with Ben Ainsley, with um, the Team Sky, obviously, in particular, even to a certain extent with Mercedes, even to a certain extent with his investment in the All Blacks rugby team. There's nothing there that's going to actually give you, as a United fan, vast encouragement that he is going to make 
Manchester United in once again into a really elite superpower. So I understand all the reservations from the fans. However, the bottom line then is, of course, that he's not a glazer. So anything in charge, and it appears he's going to be in charge of the football operations, if he's in charge and not the Glazers, then that has to be a positive for United fans. Not positive enough, because clearly they would like the Glazers out, lock, stock and barrel. They want them to have nothing to do with the club. That's not going to be the case. However, if anything dilutes their input into the football club, into the running of the football club as a football club, then they probably welcome it. But I can understand why they are, you know, I can understand why the jury's out on this whole thing. Yeah. Do, do, do you see like that, Matt? Is, is, is Jim Ratcliffe trying to, you know, sort of be the champion himself and take responsibility for, for the football side of things? And, and, and therefore, if he is, what, what have got to be his goals? What have got to be his targets? Well, I mean, the trouble is, uh, and I've alluded this, to this before, ultimately, as Andy says, the Glazers will restrict him with budgets and other things that he can't control. So what he has to do as a minority shareholder trying to grab a hold of the football club is make a lot of noise uh, and sound like he's doing the right things, even if he's not actually got the power to do it. Uh, and that tends to lead to sort of big, bold stroke uh, moves like bringing in Dave Brailsford. It looks like an idea. It looks like a, yeah, a piece of thinking. It looks like something revolutionary. But but the fact is, you know, the whole club just needs to get back to, to what it does best, which used to be playing football, you know, putting quality out on the pitch. You know, any business that loses sight of what it's actually supposed to be doing, it, it is going to be in danger. And, and, you know, and unfortunately that goes to the very top. And if the owners can't see that and move on somewhere else, then you've got to look at the people controlling the top. So that's why Richard Arnold had to go. You know, he's right if this is a, a manoeuvre by Ratcliffe to try and bring as many allies as he can who have a view that, you know, what we've got to stick with as a business is doing, you know, what what they've always done. That That's the message you need to get across to Manchester United uh, and go back to the old values that have been so successful for such a long period of time. Uh, and... Um, and, you know, the rest is kind of just noise. And, and the, the fear is that until the Glazers actually move on, then, you know, unless, you know, he can land on some sort of lucky, successful um, formula, that it is going to still be a struggle. Did you see any light of the tunnel, Jeremy? Because it feels like this season's gone backwards, hasn't it? Let's be honest. You know, last week we saw green shoots, didn't we? Yeah, well, look, they've, they've lost three of the last five games. They they take a step forward, they take two back. Tanag, whatever he's tried this season, the team just cannot seem to get a foothold into the season and get a run of games going, get some proper momentum. Um, and, he, you know, in fairness, he's had some injuries to deal with as well. We found out last week that Ericsson's going to be out for about a month and um, Oyland's been ruled out injured. Casemiro's missing. You know, she's not had the greatest look with injuries. They're key players for United. They just they just, they just, just remain an unpredictable team. You know, you just can't. You turn up to co- cover a game and you just don't know what's going to happen. It all just feels like a struggle. I mean, you, listen, if you're off in fourth place now, it's snatch your hand off. Again, that's where the stats come in. Yeah, they've lost three of the last five. They've won four of the last five Premier League games. 
they've taken more points from their last five Premier League games than any other team in the division. I mean, so how do you square that off? Manager of the month material, that, don't they? It, it is. I mean, you know, there's no getting away from it. You know, I mean, there is absolutely no getting away from it. Do you think they've made progress this season, then? No, I don't think they've made any progress this season at all. No, they haven't made progress because they, they are, um, at this stage of the season now, they have 21 points from 12 games and they had 23 from 12 last season. So there's no progress there. There's two points less than they have. But there's no spectacular. Um, and I, I, as you quite rightly referenced, they have had some injury problems. I wouldn't excuse him. Um, the way they're playing, as in they're not great to watch, they're a dull team to watch. But again, you can do it either way. You can say, like he says, Ten Hag, you know, that he admits they're not playing very well. And, you know, how many times do we trot out the old cliche that at the sign of a, of a decent team is a, is a team that actually grinds out wins when it's not playing well? We can't have it both ways. We can't use that for someone and then not use that for United. I think United right at this moment are... And I agree, and I've watched them a lot, and they're not great to watch, but they are quite an easy... It's easy to to go over the top in terms of how how big or small the crisis is. I do think that it will be quite um, significant what happens in Istanbul and then a home to Bayern Munich. I think a failure to qualify out of that group, and, you know, arguably they're probably going to have to win both of those games, which they're capable of doing. I think that will be significant. Um, but I see no reason at all with United why certainly top four. And when you say be happy by top four, with top four, yes, I'm sure you would. I'm sure United fans actually would at this moment because they realise that the gap between them and Manchester City will take a long time to bridge. Uh, and then there's no getting away from that. I mean, no matter what Sir Jim Ratcliffe comes in and, and, and does, it will take some considerable time to bridge that gap to a club that, you know, at the top of it has, has had people running it. Well, they've been running it as a successful football club on the pitch, let's just put it that way. They have, and I, I guess that's the only thing, isn't it? Basically, it has been a successful business, if you like. And therefore, you know, kind of Richard Arnold probably feels a bit a bit hard done by, in a way, as I'm sure probably would with the same, because basically they're keeping their end of the bargain. They're spending a lot of money, but not spending particularly well. And, and, and I'm, sure we'll, I'm sure we'll come on to it, but, you know, United is a club that, that doesn't have any charges hanging over it, like other clubs, plural, um, in the Premier League. The issue is with United, and I, I, t- I accept what Dunny says, but that's the club that is synonymous with success. They, they want to be compared to Real Madrid, Barcelona... And, you know, for too many years now, they've just been so far off their level and standards. You know, I mean, they, they, the decades they compared themselves, they set their level with Liverpool. How are Liverpool doing? You know, and they, they got done by seven, eight, eight goals last season at Liverpool. I know it was a free goal and everything, but, but, and, and they won a trophy last season and got to a final, but it was the Carabao Cup. We, we, we became used to seeing United win the Champions League or at least, you know, get to the latter stage of the Champions League. We're now talking about I'm struggling to get out of a group that contained, well, they, sh- they should be getting out of. And under Fergie and other managers, they would have they just cruised through that group. So that's the problem. That's how, how far they've fallen. I, I, I just think it's a strange, you know, thing, isn't it? They're basically, you know, a football club basically, you know, can only, can almost only spend because of FFP what it generates. And off the pitch, they are. They are a success, whether we like it or not. So Jim Ratcliffe, you know, as he prepares to come in, what, who's his first casualty? It's, 
it's Richard Arnold, you know, but it's an easy win, isn't it? It's an easy win. Ultimately, the chief executive puts himself in the firing line by by being seen as the kind of the biggest, you know, employee of the company, if you see what I mean. I think generalising, when once Ratcliffe gets his foot in the door, he will ass- assess what, what the scenario is like, how the club functions, and his ultimate get, get goal will be to become a major share, the major shareholder. And whether they can do that with the Glazers remains to be seen. Who knows? But he must think it. He must think it's a possible deal to be done with the Glazers in terms of him becoming the major owner, because he wouldn't have bought a share to begin with. Just, just very quickly, what do you think Jim Ratcliffe's um, motives are for getting involved in Man United? He's a lifelong fan, isn't he? On all that, but I mean, I always look at these people who've worked, been incredibly successful, they've earned so much money. I mean, it's just a. It is like flushing money down a toilet, isn't it, when you invest it in a football club. It just takes so much running and cost. But then he can do it. He literally cannot spend his, his money. So it, it just looks to me sometimes, you know, that I think, you know, when I look at what he's got involved in, as I say, the cycling, the Formula One, the America's Cup, it's like some sort of magnificent bucket list, you know, for the guy who's thinking, you know what, I'm going to spend my dough, you know, I, I'm, I'm – and what's what, what, what is he? Seventy years of age. How am I going to spend my dog? Got you know, and, and well, I'm the richest man, you, you know, in town basically. And I'm sure business wise, he's conscious of making it a, a success. But it just strikes, and, and it's interesting. Nothing wrong with that. I mean, I guess you know, if you had that money to spare, you thought, well, you know, we all have bucket lists. We but they're more likely oh, we might want to go. And, Watch a match in, you know, wherever, or we might go, go and play a round of golf at St. Andrews or yeah, something like that. You know what I mean? They're your bucket list. This guy can afford a rather more um, extravagant bucket list, and, and United are on it. Whether or not that's going to be the recipe for getting United that step back up to where they were, I'm not sure. Crossy, how much did Roman Abramovich spend on Chelsea? What was the rough figure that he cost him to have a tie broke? Well, I know. I mean, he, he, you know, when he, um, I can't remember off the top of my head, but basically he, he pumped so much money into that. And obviously he took over at a time when um, uh, uh, when actually there wasn't FFP, you know, in place and it was effectively brought in to, to kind of, you know, stop Chelsea and Manchester City taking over the world, basically. Um, and uh, so, you know, he, he arrived with, with so much, you know, with, you know, so much to spend and what have you. And in the end, it was clear that basically, you know, he, he almost wanted all the money back because it was acrimonious. He didn't want to leave Chelsea, basically, obvious for obvious reasons. And he kind of, you know, left for them with this huge multi-billion pound bill of trying to almost pay back Abramovich to take over the club, if you like. So, I mean, it was... But he, he, he did it on a totally different, you know... Uh, with a totally different sort of kind of mindset and, and and landscape at the time, because basically he wasn't restricted when he first took over. I mean, you remember the incredible signings that he made that just didn't work. You know, I mean, you know, it's just uh, Crespo and, and 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 players like Veron and players like that. I mean, it's just you know, it's just oh, yeah. I mean, it was just 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 crazy. And yet, actually, if you ask the, the, the you know most Chelsea fans, they. They, you know, they kind of, they loved the Abramovich era and were heartbroken when it ended. And 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 listen, also, 
you know, the other, it, it, nothing is ever straightforward in this world, is it? And basically, you know, he did great things, Abramovich, for for Chelsea Football Club. They won a lot of trophies, but, 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 but aside from that, off the field stuff, you know, about sort of kind of, you know, rebuilding the club, rebuilding the area, you know, his work on kind of, you know, community, his work on kind of anti-Semitism, for example. It was just, you know, fan, you know, really engaged and uh and you know it, it, obviously the last few de- years were, were, were more difficult because he wasn't welcome in the country and then was you know was was kind of you know swept out of town but i mean it, it goes back to the point that basically you know i think where, where i'm going to link this back to united is that i don't actually think too many football fans really care about where the owners from what his background is and where he's coming from, as long as he's in love with the club, he's committed to the club and will spend money on the club and will invest in the club, both, you know, from a financial perspective and then and then beyond, you know. So I do I do actually think that, that you know, it's that you know, it's a, it's a really complex one for Chelsea. Let's move on to, should we, perhaps to the title race in general. It was, I mean, the game at um, Stamford Bridge, Matt, you and I were both at a goal thriller on Sunday. Um, I thought it, it it was a brilliant game, a game for the ages, a Clampsu Premier League classic. But did it expose, I think it arguably did, that, that City, you know, are, I wouldn't say there to be shot at, but basically might be vulnerable a little bit this season before it inevitably run in, you know, do their running with 15 straight wins, of course. But, you know, you know what I mean? It, it, you know, it might be a title race this season. Well, well, well Chelsea thought, certainly thought so. And uh, and I think when, um, after everything that Chelsea had thrown at them in the first half, when City went 2-1 up, in a previous season, you think, oh, that's just so, so much to City. Here they go, they're going to roll in another couple of goals. We're all going to pretend it was close, but actually it's going to save four one at the end, whatever. Um, and they're going to roll, yeah, run away with another three points. But Ch- yeah, Chelsea felt they were there to be taken certainly, and um, you know they gave it a really good go. And uh, yeah, I-, I do think that there is a, a vulnerability. I mean, for Ch- for Ch- for City to concede four goals for a start shows a vulnerability that wasn't there before. Um, Diaz certainly didn't have the best of games. John Stones was a bad miss for them, uh, and I think it might have made a difference. But, yeah, that, I mean, to a bit of pace, you know, uh, a bit of uh, Raheem Sterling was excellent, which I'm sure we'll talk about later with the England uh, situation. Um, they were making the right runs. They were making dangerous runs. And, and yes, yeah, he didn't look like they were coping with it. And, yeah, for them to keep giving away leads just – isn't very much the city, and and that is a departure from previous seasons. And I think there is a sense that in dressing rooms up and down the country, managers are telling their players, "Look, these are a, a team that won the treble last year. They're not going to be the same as City that did that. You know, where's their motivation? You must want it more than they do, uh, and send them out over that white line. And often, you know, to, to battle with them, which hasn't always happened, and. You know, when you've got Conor Gallagher standing over Rodri in the last minutes and giving it large, you sort of think, well, 
if you feel that that sort of David against Goliath battle can be won, then then you've got a chance against them. And the sort of aura perhaps isn't there until, like you say, later in the season, they suddenly win eight in a row and then suddenly they look unbeatable again. Uh, and that kind of then becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy again. Yeah, yeah. Je- Jeremy, who do you see City's closest uh, uh, City's closest challenges, the ones that are going to run Guardiola's men closest this season? Probably Liverpool. I mean, they're the closest team to them at the minute. I know their form's been a bit up and down the last two or three weeks, but you just know Liverpool are going to be there, don't you? They'll keep getting the wins. I mean, Arsenal, you know, they're only a couple of points behind. They're right on the shoulder. Um, I don't know. I, I just hope that these teams can keep pace with City because it could be one of the greatest title races we've seen for, for many years because City have obviously dominated. Liverpool won it. There's three or four teams with a genuine shout of toppling City. That would be brilliant to watch. But yeah, you've got to think Liverpool are, are going to be are going to be not going to go away either. Liverpool, Arsenal probably won't go away. I mean, they, they could have won it themselves last year, but and you know, I think the key to their challenge again will be what they learned from that experience probably last season when they were overhauled and picked towards the end in the finishing furlongs. Yeah, I must say, hat tip as 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 the kids say to Andy Dunn, who tipped Liverpool for the title this season, if I'm not mistaken. I, I thought, I thought, hang on, Dunny, what, what, you know, hang on, what you're smoking there over at the Emirates? But basically, it was just, you know, I, I, I listen. I thought Liverpool would be dramatically improved, but I, I tell you what, I'm not sure I saw them as, as, you know, I thought that if they could get in the top four, they'd have done well because it's such a big rebuild and might take another season. I tell you what, they look a good team to me. Thanks very much, and I still think that they will. I, I, I'm with Jess, and I think that they will. That they will be the team that. Challenges City, and I, I think they'll win the title. I, start, I thought that at the start of the season, and I still think that now. I think the combination again, what the lads have referred to, of you can't help. I think it's almost impossible for City not to have an element of call it what you want, complacency or a knock-on effect from what they did last season. Where do we go now? You know, what more can we achieve? I think that would be maybe tick them down performance-wise than we've already seen it a percentage or two. And I think Liverpool have just rejuvenated their midfield to such an extent and have three options, as in three from five options up front, you know, that the the other teams just don't have. And, of course, individually they have, I know we had the debate in in the Daily Mirror um, earlier this week about if Mo Salah's been the best player in the Premier League, you know, over the last five, six years. For me, he has. So they've got all those things, um, and they've got what seems like a rejuvenated Jurgen Klopp, which he always is when they're winning games. And I think they've got it all. Yeah, I didn't see the the slight hiccup of Luton Town coming, but I guess that can happen. So yeah, I don't see Liverpool's challenge fading in, in, in any way. I mean, and I, I would have thought that if they need to, they can maybe reinforce in the January window. But I don't see them needing to. Yeah, I, I don't see much wrong with that Liverpool team. Plus, of course, they have Anfield, which you know their record there is truly remarkable. I mean, City is the same with City, to be fair. And we're going to see a game on a week on Saturday, aren't we? Where, where Manchester City go for the record number of consecutive home wins in the top flight, and we're not just talking Premier League here. We're going back to the late. When was it, 1890s or something like that with him? I think it was Sunderland. 
It's 24. Anyway, City have won 23 games across all competitions on the spin at the Etihad. And I think 24 would equal it. Listen, I may be wrong there, but I think it's Sunderland back in, well, back back before the turn of the previous century. But anyway, so they both have these formidable records. Something's got to give. Well, not something hasn't got to give, but I think this is, you know, this, this of all the games, the City Liverpool game, you know, could be the one that maybe um, just, just just lets us know, lets us know if there's going to be a, a really humdinger of a title race. John, just going back to City in the Chelsea game, I don't know when the last time it was that City conceded four goals in a game, but last season when they won the treble... It was against Leicester. It was against Leicester three years ago. Last year when they became a machine again and won the treble and were all torn at Haaland's goals and what a great attacking team they are, the defensive record was astonishingly good. I can't remember off the top of my head, but considered like two goals in 12 games or something ridiculous. So that'll be a worry for Pep, you know, seeing four goals going at Chelsea. That, that'll be alarming for him, that. Yeah, I, I must say, I thought it was Garnival, basically. He just doesn't, he looks a centre-half playing left-back. He, he basically, you know, I mean, I'm sure he'll be a really good signing and he'll adapt, but he looks a centre-half playing left-back. He doesn't, you know, he looks struggling, sort of Bambi on ice, basically, left and then basically also hasn't adjusted yet to kind of the more demanding defensive role um, of a fullback that Guardiola, you know, has for, 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 for any player. I think in the background there, I might be wrong here, but also I must say that that debate we had in the mirror the other day, I didn't read it as if the instruction was the best five or six years, I didn't read it like that. But I went Bernardo Silva because I just think he's absolutely unbelievable. But, um, but anyway, so I thought right now, but anyway, I always think he's just... A, Astonishing, astonishing. But anyway, but then also I'm slightly concerned because it looks to me as if Matt Dunn is looking up that previous record, the winning run, and um, Matt Dunn will probably be getting a call from his from his news editor to say, "Any chance we could uh, we could find a member of that of that Sunderland team?" Um, <laughs> uh, anyway, anyway, I slightly digress, but I do. He's interesting. I'm going to ask Matt on North London. So, Matt, I'm going to come to you and talk about North London here. I do remember um, uh, Spurs fans gloating when there were five points clear, and basically Jeremy spent all last season trying to gently poke the bear. And, and tell me how Arsenal would be the biggest jobs in footballing history if they let a five-point gap at the top of the Premier League slip to Manchester City in last season's title race. So where on earth, I ask you, Matthew, does this leave Ange Postacoglu, or is it always destined to happen? Because as good a start as they made, and they deserve huge credit, it was always going to be their thin squad that undid them. It was always bound to happen because they're Spursy still. It's brilliant every week. We're, we're, we're saying Spurs, Spurs are Spurs. Spurs are no longer Spursy. We write one week and then the next. No, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, that five points are slightly artificial uh, advantage, wasn't it? Not that Spurs fans saw it that way, but uh, it's all to do with timings of games over the weekend and what have you. But. Um, but yeah, no, it's what we knew all along is that there isn't a lot of depth to that squad. And when you play at high line with um, Eric Dyer and Ben Davis, it's a very different thing uh, to playing it with uh, Romero and Ben. Um, it's, yeah, it was an accident waiting to happen. It's the first real test of the Postacoglu 
era. He said, it's all been great so far. He's now got to dig them out of a bit of a hole. I think he'll do it because of his energy and, and the fact that Spurs fans seem to be enjoying the ride again. It's not that the expectations have changed. They're loving the fact that they are at the top, but they're not expecting Harry Kane. You know, there's nothing expected of them. It's not all about Harry Kane winning a medal. Um, and it is kind of a lot more fun. There's a lot more joy at White Hart Lane than there has been for several seasons, probably since the closure of the last stadium when they went unbeaten in their entire last season, when, when it was all about just Gareth Bale and he was about the only good player they had. Uh, and, and you enjoyed what you could get from from a visit there, and uh, and if they you know if it didn't do so well, then kind of that was Spurs for you, um, yeah. So uh, they need to go again. They need to get their players back, but I still think they'll pick up points where they're not supposed to, uh, and and cause a, a, a nonsense to themselves. Unfortunately, the bar has risen since 2016 when they were last genuine title contenders. Um, in that you need more points to win the title these days with City and Liverpool setting the bar so high. So no one's going to muddle their way to winning the title. Which, you know, if it was genuinely uh, sort of a free-for-all, the, the, winners, the winners of the title will have more points than Tottenham are capable of getting, I think, which is, you know, no, no disrespect to them, but it's a building process and... You know, add a few more players in the summer, uh, and perhaps they've got a chance. But 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 I think too early this year. Harry Kane factor, which has taken a hell of a lot of replacing, but uh, but it's still a big hole in their their armoury. I'm inclined to agree. Unfortunately, the, the Tottenham's defence in their last two games has been about as effective and as reliable as your Wi-Fi. But, um, but I, uh, you know, I, I do think you know Arsenal is the, is the other one to think about. And I, I, while, I, while I think, while I think, while I think, you know, Declan Rice has been a tremendous inspirational sign and has made a huge difference for Arsenal. I'm not actually sure that they're any better. In fact, you could argue that they're not playing as well as they did last season. Arteta hasn't found the right balance yet. Maybe if they find the right chemistry, then they, then they'll, you know, start to flow. But it doesn't feel like they're flowing. But I tell you, I do want to move it on to England, um, and uh, particularly Wembley Friday night. And Andy, what, what what can Gareth Southgate learn out of two games, which are you know dead rubbers as we see it, but Gareth Southgate is obviously talking about him. What, what can he gain from these two fixtures, do you think? I think the only thing he can gain, nothing from the actual performances really against Malta and Macedonia. They, they, they'll win both games and, and, and you know, the actual nature of the performance is probably largely irrelevant. You know, people will, will, will be, will shrug at whatever happens or they might get outraged if they don't beat Malta by six or seven. Um, et cetera, et cetera. Well, but, but the reason why it's it, the, the only reason, the only real reason why it's good for Southgate is that it's another international break. It's another camp. You know, when, when you start to get to this stage, you start talking in terms of camps until we start the major tournament, which is Euro 2024. And I think just as important is the players being together, um, the players who might come in, the players who probably aren't going to go to the Euro 2024 um, next summer, and 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 that's probably players like it probably is a player like Cole Palmer, 
It's probably a player like Rico Lewis, like Esri Conzet. They're the players who've been brought in to replace injured players or cry-offs for this one. And I think getting them into the squad, integrating them, getting to know the way Ghana Southgate operates the senior squad, getting to everything around it, and then just in case they are required for next summer, they'll have a head start. They'll know what's expected. They'll know the way Southgate runs the ship. They'll know the demands. And I think that's as important as actually the performances against Malta and Macedonia, which will be much changed teams. As I say, what are we going to learn from those games? Well, you know, precious little, really, to be perfectly honest with you. They'll, they'll win both games. Um, but I do think it's more the yet another building block towards Euro in terms of bonding between the players, between the staff, and, and within the entire England camp. Yeah, yeah. yeah Jeremy, it was... Um... Me and Andy had this discussion, so I want to kind of invite someone else to have it. A way back for Raheem Sterling, you know, because Raheem is, you know, has obviously been, you know, a big player in recent tournaments. Um, his record is still very good, caps to goals, um, you know, and he's rediscovered some form for Chelsea. I guess the interesting one that, you know, everyone will throw up, basically, when you've been a big player, can you go back to being a squad player? Because there's no doubt about it, it's not just the battle to get, you know, into the squad. It faces an even tougher task to get beyond the likes of uh, of Bakayo Sakram and, uh, and such forth, isn't it? For years and years, he was one of the first names on the team sheet, wasn't he? And he used to be a bit of a standing joke where you just knew he would be picked to start a game and he was clearly one of his favourites. And, you know, I suppose going back to the last World Cup, he didn't, I mean, he had to come home, obviously, for... for certain reasons, but, you know, there was some suggestion that he was annoyed he'd not started a certain game. Um, and there's clearly tensions between him and Southgate. And, you know, he pulled out of that squad in June, obviously. Well, he asked to be left out of the squad in June, um, which didn't stack up uh, to me. And clearly Southgate was annoyed. Maybe he's questioning his commitment, maybe. I mean, Southgate doesn't mess about if you think someone's not fully on board. So... Well, you look at the player, he's got 180, I think he's 186 caps, is it? Something like that. He might be the most capped player in the team or in this current group. Kane might have won a couple more, I don't know. but And he's only 28, Sterling. It's like, he's not even at his peak yet. You know, and he's been around for so long, like Rashford. Um, he burst onto the scene, didn't he, as a teenager. Um, he's been a great player for England, Sterling. He's had some good games for England. Um, but... Times change. Other players come through, you know. You've got Foden, you've got a wealth. You could really soccer, as you mentioned, you know, and he's no longer guaranteed in, in, in the team. And I don't think Sterling's that sort of character to just want to be in a squad and not be involved and sit on the bench for two, two games, you know, looking on. I don't think he, he really want that. So, Do you think that dynamic, that, that, that bit of the chemistry defines this? Yeah, I, I think I think Southgate has has question marks or doubts about Sterling's commitment moving forward. Um, otherwise, why would he not include him in a squad? He's picked, he's, he's called a Cole, Cole Palmer. I mean, Sterling. I mean, listen, Palmer's playing well. Fair enough. But Sterling has been in great form these last few weeks. There's no justification for not picking him purely down to his performances for Chelsea because he's been good. So if if he's not why is he not picked him? That's that's what I would like to to know. What what's the reason? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Matt, Matt, what do you 
you know, we're both on the we're both on the end end of end of the road qualification trip to North Macedonia the weekend as well, aren't we? And then basically, well, you know, is there is there anyone that you think? I mean, Rico Lewis, I think, really interests me because basically, he can play in so many different roles. And basically, if England are struggling for a left back, and they definitely are because of it, you know, Shaw and Chilwell both, you know struggling with injuries, Trippier fills in there. Is there anyone that can use the next two games to go, Bosh, I'm going to put myself in in the frame for March and beyond, you know, because, you know, basically I do feel as if you've got two chances, this camp and the next camp in March, to kind of really stake a claim. Who's Who out of these next two games is going to stake that claim? Well, the short answer is no one. Uh, and the long answer is no one. Yeah, there's not. There's, we've got you, you've got to do the maths. With these squads, twenty five, twenty six that he's naming, he's got to name twenty three. So he's got to actually get rid of players, not bring them in um, before the summer. Um, Ricky Lewis, I think. Yeah, I think he's really excited about the prospect that he offers. Um, but for the next round of matches, England matches, to be fair to Southgate, he may not be manager after the summer, but he is still planning for the future. Uh, and getting him in now and hit Cole Palmer similarly, uh, I think he, as Andy referred to, I think uh, he's given him a taste of what being a senior England player is like, ready for some Nations League games, which should be a bit more experimental and a bit more looking towards the future. Um, as, but, but for, for this summer, the, the, the law of averages is that one of his two established left backs is fit again. And then Trippier covers that. You've got Colwell. You've got so many players who have been part of the England setup that I can't see anyone new forcing their way in, which is why, you know, you effectively name the same squad again, um, you know, minus, you know, a couple of those 24, 25, 26 players um, that he changed with. Uh, he knows who his 23 are, are barring injury. Um there isn't a Marcus Rashford to come in like 2016. Um, and I don't think, to be fair, Southgate would put that pressure on any player, even if they had a, a stormer of a second half of the season. Um, he, he knows what he's got. He knows it's good enough to win. He knows it may win. He knows he also might not win. Um, the only question, I, I still fancy Sterling to force his way in just because of his experience. Uh, and, you know, he plays. We've not been playing against the best defenses uh, when all these players have looked like world beaters. They're not been world beaters. They've been Malta beaters. They've been North. Yeah, you know, we used to play against Macedonia. Now it's North Macedonia. You know, it, it'd be North North Macedonia next, perhaps. Um, but uh, but when we're playing Brazil and Belgium, I think Sterling might be back in the squad, and uh, and I think some of the players who've enjoyed being flat track bullies might suddenly find they come up against some proper defenders uh, uh, and not necessarily have the nous to accept what they can't do, which Sterling has learned over 82 caps or whatever it is and uh, and has that extra experience, which I, I think ultimately uh, Southgate could do with in the summer. Um, if things aren't quite working, somebody who's been there before and um, been in that situation, I, I still think that's a chance for him. Well, no, well, we shall see. We shall see. Uh, interesting games ahead. Guys, thanks so much for joining. And thanks, everyone, for tuning in. And um, see you same time, same place next week. 